from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. The first time Sue Natali was in the Arctic was about a decade ago. She was a PhD candidate studying evolution and ecology at Stony Brook University. I was really interested in global impacts of the biosphere of ecosystems or natural systems on the Earth's climate. And I knew that the Arctic was really important in this context because there's a lot of carbon stored in the Arctic. I also knew the Arctic was warming quite rapidly, more rapidly than the rest of the planet. And so that's what drove me to seek out research opportunities in the Arctic. And it was there she realized one of climate change's biggest unsolved problems was right under her feet. Where we were setting up this experiment, it had not been thawing yet. And so if you're just standing there, you don't know that you're on top of permafrost. Permafrost. Officially, it's any ground that remains below zero degrees Celsius for more than two years. Essentially, it's the frozen layer of rocks, soil, ice, and partially decomposed plants that underlies much of the land north of the Arctic Circle, in some areas further south. And it's what scientists call a carbon sink. Permafrost stores a massive amount of carbon. It's about 1.5 trillion tons of carbon. So every tree and every forest on the planet, it's three times more carbon than that that's stored in permafrost. And almost twice as much carbon stored in permafrost than is in the atmosphere. 1.5 trillion tons of carbon. That's twice the amount of carbon that's in our atmosphere at the moment. And when the permafrost melts, all that carbon gets released back into the atmosphere, warms the planet further, and no surprise, that warming is making it melt a lot faster. You can go your day-to-day life and not think about permafrost because permafrost is it's the structure of the ground, right? So when it's frozen, like that's normal conditions and you're just on the ground. It's when it's thawing that you really recognize permafrost and it becomes like really like in your face, you know, just just the magnitude of this. And Sue witnessed that magnitude firsthand years ago when she was working in Siberia. And I think the thing that really struck me is I, you know, we were coming up on the river in a boat and I was like, whoa, like actively seeing the dripping, you know, hearing dripping and like seeing like clump, like things falling. And then along the shore, like bones of Pleistocene aged mammals. And then the other thing that stuck out to me is like when you go up to the top of the cliff and you can maybe walk, you know, whatever, 100 meters back where you're not in the area that's actively thawing, you're just standing in a forest. You know, it's just like remarkable, like it's like a very, very like visceral experience. And I, and it just struck me because I'm like, if I had come upon this cliff from the other direction, I wouldn't even be thinking about permafrost. I wouldn't even recognize just how vulnerable this forest is. But underneath so much of the Arctic, you have that possibility of that ground collapse. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, permafrost, or permafrost thaw. It's this big variable that gets lost in the carbon math, and it's wreaking havoc on Arctic communities. An ambitious scientific effort is finally trying to tackle the problem. Will it? The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? 
On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a Frontier Forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, cost, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. Dr. Sue Natale now works at the Woodwell Climate Research Center in Massachusetts. Her early Arctic research wasn't really focused on permafrost, but as she got deeper and looked at the problem, she quickly became a permafrost expert. 15% of the northern hemisphere land areas underlain by permafrost. Large areas of Russia, large areas of Canada, much of Alaska, Fennoscandinavian. Yeah, so there's a lot of permafrost out there. And Sue knows a lot about permafrost. She's one of the foremost experts on the topic. She is definitely a permafrost nerd. I have found mammoth tusks, you know, at the shoreline of an eroding cliff. It looks like driftwood. There's so many bones, and you pick it up, and it's actually not driftwood. It is like Pleistocene aged mammal bones. You can sink into permafrost and not be able to get out. It can, it can be really mucky. Um, and you have to crawl around like a crocodile to, to get yourself out. I've lost boots in permafrost. All sorts of equipment have been sucked away by permafrost. Is it dangerous? They found seas in permafrost. Is it dangerous? It's dangerous if your house is on it. It's dangerous if you um, need to sort of move across the landscape and it's it's don't have enough, any other, other way to get around. But um, if, if you're in one of those places, yes, you could fall into permafrost. They've found seeds from permafrost that are still viable, that are that thousands of years old. I think that's really neat. Ice wedges that are in permafrost can be so huge, they can be the size of a house. People who live on permafrost were, you know, the first ones really noticing what's happening because their ice cellars were, weren't functioning, right? And they were starting to collapse and, and the food, food was going bad and just, you know, meat that people have hunted and fish. So anyway, so some of these are built, you know, underneath the permafrost, but I've been into some of these permafrost tunnels that are like inside of an ice wedge. It looks like a magical ice castle. So 15% of the global north is covered in permafrost. When we think about the impact of that permafrost starting to thaw, there are a couple of different impacts. One is the impact to structures and people's ways of life. And there's climate change, carbon and methane emissions. Let's talk about the acute impact first to communities. What is the impact? So communities in the Arctic have been feeling the impacts of climate change for a long time now. It's, you know, warming at least three times faster than the rest of the planet in the Arctic. And there's a number of different things that are happening. One of them is permafrost thaw, but I will say like permafrost thaw doesn't happen in a bubble. Like permafrost thaw is related to sea ice loss and erosion and flooding. All of these things contribute. And so, you know, when the ground thaws, The ice, if there's ice in the ground, which there often is, that ice then turns into water and so you lose your structure. And so what often happens is you get ground collapse. The ground collapse can be extreme where you have trees toppling over. But even if it's more subtle, if your house is on permafrost and you even a subtle, that impacts your foundation, right? And so people who live on permafrost raise their houses every year 
to keep them level. And now we're having to raise them multiple times a year. Um, it's impacting people's ability to travel across the landscape because it gets the ground quite, you know, really mucky and you get a ponding happening. It leads to more coastal erosion because you had this sort of cement, you know, this frozen permafrost. And as that thaws, the coast then becomes more vulnerable um, to erosion and impact from storm damages. It's also causing increased silting of water and people rely on these water for their, for their water so- source, local rivers and ponds. Um, and so, you know, it's the range of impacts are quite broad and it's it's not like permafrost doesn't exist alone. It is one component of this, of the ecosystem. And as a result of permafrost law, though, people are having to make really difficult decisions about how, like, can they live in their ancestral homes? And, you know, how do they adapt to climate change? Does that mean, you know, can they protect themselves and their communities in the place where they're living or are they going to have to relocate? And there's a number of communities who are having to deal with this. And how about the climate impact? What do we know about the carbon and methane stored in permafrost? And why is it stored there? There's a lot of carbon in permafrost, and that carbon is currently frozen. Um, It's been accumulating for tens and thousands of years, and it's essentially carbon that's been taken up by plants. um, And, you know, the plants die, and when it's really warm, they decompose right away. But in the Arctic, it's cold and it's wet. And so, you know, it's just essentially the thousands of years remnants of ancient plants and also animals. And so that's just been slowly building up over tens and thousands of years. Now that it's frozen, um, its microbes now have access to it and they can break that carbon down. They use it as an energy source and in the process release greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane. Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com events or click the link in the show notes. So why is permafrost not getting the attention that it needs to get as part of our global discussions about climate change? I think there's a few reasons why. I mean, on the one hand, it's harder to see permafrost than, say, a forest. I mean, you know, I mean, that just seems like quite an obvious thing. But if you think about a satellite, you see imagery you've seen. You know, if you look at, if you go to Google Earth, you know, if you look around the imagery of the Arctic, you're not going to immediately see permafrost. I can see indicators of permafrost and I can have an idea, but but most people are going to look and they're going to say, I see tundra, um, but you can see forests. So we can more easily see and measure and monitor carbon that's in a, in a forest. So that's sort of, I guess I'd say, one reason why it's not accounted for. But I think the other reason is just this big uncertainty about, you know, what's happening with carbon cycling in the Arctic now. Um, when will permafrost thaw? And 
how much carbon will be released when it's when it thaws? Will it be released as carbon dioxide or methane? And and it, it's it seems like a relatively easy question, but there's so many complicating factors. You know, just because it's this biological process in this complex world, you know, where we're thinking about my, you know really diverse microbial communities. And the Arctic isn't a thing. It's many, many different places. Some are forested, you know, some areas have sandy soil, some have really dry soil, some have wet soil, some are wetlands. And so it's it's hard to come up with one number. And, and part of the reason for that uncertainty is, you know, it's, we have much more limited monitoring of greenhouse gas emissions and carbon cycling in the Arctic than we do um, in other areas in lower in lower latitudes in the continuous U.S. And even the the work that's done in the Arctic, there are many areas that are gaps, and so much more research done, say, in Alaska than in the Canadian high Arctic and some areas of of Siberia. Say, so we have a lot of gaps just in where. We do the monitoring. I mean, it's it's cold. It's it's remote. You know, it's hard for instrumentation to work. It's hard for people to access areas. You know, there's not as many roads in the Arctic as there are in other places. And so there's just a number of reasons. And, you know, I think another challenge is the Arctic isn't one country. It's multiple nations. So, you know, if you're thinking about a national effort to assess, say, carbon cycling on your lands, you know, there are tend to be regional efforts. There tends to be lots of work happening in Alaska. But, you know, we haven't taken a pan-Arctic scale because there's no one country. You know, it's not one country. It's many countries, the Arctic. It's many languages, the Arctic. And what are the most up-to-date estimates on the degree to which thawing permafrost could impact the global carbon budget? So many of the models either don't include permafrost at all. Um, the very few that do um, don't account for these abrupt ground collapses that are happening. They don't account for the impact of wildfire and permafrost, which can greatly accelerate thaw. And so there's a number of really important processes that are happening and that are accelerating. Right now, I feel like climate change is happening faster than the science and we have an opportunity now to speed up the science in studying permafrost. You're the lead scientist on the Permafrost Pathways Project. This is a, a new $41 million grant over six years that is going to help fund permafrost research, help scientists like you get their arms around the scope of the problem. What is the project? What is its goal? And how will it help us propel the science as it stands? So the three core components of the project, the first um, focuses on monitoring and modeling so that we can reduce that scientific uncertainty. So that we can say, are permafrost carbon emissions going to be the size of India, uh, Japan, or the United States, right? We need to we need to be able to reduce the range of possibilities. Um, and so we'll be setting up new instrumentation across the Arctic to measure the exchange of carbon dioxide and methane between the land and the atmosphere. We'll be using that data in a new modeling framework. We'll be updating the models. We'll be um, adding in relevant processes into the models that we're working with and working broadly with the scientific community. And so, you know, working with a network of scientists and supporting the scientists that are already out there making a lot of these measurements and trying to build a network so that we can really 
do the most that we can with the existing data, build on that data, and really have these this data inform the models. The goal of this, the monitoring and modeling is to really reduce our uncertainty and permafrost thaw and global impacts of permafrost thaw. The next component of this project has to do with getting that information into the hands of decision makers. And so, you know, Often when we do science, we publish that science in an academic journal and it kind of sits there. It's really important research. Other scientists see it. Sometimes it gets media attention, but the reality is the science isn't always done in a way that's accessible to decision makers, um, nor is it brought to them in a way that they can use it. And so a lot of the work we're doing and, and not waiting for the science to, you know, in year six, we're going to talk to policymakers, but really working with the policy community now so that our the science that we can do that we do now can be done in such a way that it will be useful and usable. When did you realize that lawmakers and policymakers didn't have a clear understanding of permafrost importance? It was 2014 or 2015. I remember I was doing a briefing with some lawmakers on Capitol Hill and just talking about what I thought was like permafrost 101, pretty basic. I thought they would just be really bored. And I saw people writing notes and I'm thinking, are they like doing other work? You know, because they already know this and they didn't. And these were people who I would have expected to have this this knowledge of permafrost. And they were like, we had no idea. We had no idea that there was carbon in permafrost, that this was an important potential source of greenhouse gas emissions. And I was so... I was so surprised by that. Like it always, it always stuck with me that experience, and I still, I still am surprised when people don't know about permafrost. I think it's definitely more in this sort of conversation, but there are a lot of people who do not think about permafrost and don't have a sense of the magnitude of the its contribution to our global climate and and to its impact on our our carbon budgets. In order to say, you know, our goal of staying below two degrees Celsius or one point five degrees Celsius. I don't know when I first heard about and grappled with permafrost and some of the other climate feedback loops. It must have been in the you know, around 2006, 2007, when I started to really think about climate change. And it was one of the things that really scared me, that kept me up at night. And I hear about what you're describing and how the people sitting at the tables at Global Climate Talks haven't even really factored this into their thinking. And this is the kind of thing that still really scares me. How do you grapple with it? So I know... I know that this is happening. I know it's worse if this were to happen and we didn't know about it, right? Like having an illness, when you find out you have that illness, that's a terrible day, but it's way better than the day before when you had the illness and you had no knowledge of it. So I I understand that this is really difficult information, but it's way better to know this information because once you know it, then there is hope that you can do something to change it. Um we can't change all of it. We have already committed ourselves to some level of warming and that will continue. But I do think that it's it's really important to get this information out there and to be able to use this knowledge, to be able to use this opportunity with this grant to get support for the people who are being impacted by it. And, you know, there's a, there's an kind of a, a range of possibilities for how much permafrost thaw will thaw, say, by 2100. And number of diff- based on a number of different models, but the range always stays somewhere between 
30 to 70 percent, something like that. And I and I think about that number a lot because that doesn't mean like we don't know what the number is. It could be 30, it could be 70. It's the 30 percent is actually if we take really ambitious, ambitious climate action, right? So some is going to thought is going to be 30 percent. If we do nothing and continue as we are now, that's 70 percent. So 30 percent is bad, but I feel like 70 percent is so much worse. And so like, yes, this is bad news, but knowing about it and realizing like, yeah, we actually can take action. We can stop some permafrost from thawing. Well, I know how you should present if you find yourself in another room full of lawmakers. I think you should just start with that. That's a great set of facts. (laughs) All right. I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser Dalvin Abouage, Alexandria Herr, and Cecily Mesa-Martinez. Ann Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand mixed the show. He also came up with our original music. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude's a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors. That includes advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. And now media. Thanks, Prelude. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Send us your thoughts on social media. We love to hear from you, good or bad. And your support on the platforms with a rating is really helpful to us. Send this show to a friend or colleague, too, if you think they'd like it. And thanks for your support. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Mm -hmm.